Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 138. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's a new year, man. We're, uh, I think this is the first show that we've actually recorded for 2020 so looking forward to it we got a lot of stuff to cover and uh yeah we uh we we've already shared the news that we're gonna be uh y'all are getting soaked along with me ha 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 thanks nate you're thanks. welcome who turned his mic on man i love you guys who turned his mic on yeah, yeah. mute button you know it yeah no doubt it's funny josh um we recorded obviously the last week's episode last year on the same day we recorded uh i guess 136 and 135 so it is the first time we've been in studio lots happened since we left at least off air and so i got a bone to pick with you i was sent a note from a concerned listener that said uh let's see here where's it at it said hmm, who sent it let me see here they made the point that i thought was interesting they said um I like how at the beginning of the show, Josh said he was the host and you were the, quote, co-host. Ha. And then the person want to say, co-host status, that's like being stuck in the friend zone with a pretty girl you got a crush on. And I was like, Ouch. you know, wow, that's, that's, that wow. was, yeah, that was brutal. That, so is that what you're, is that what you're saying about me, Josh? I mean, that feels like, I mean, it, so. It sounds good. It sounds, <laughs> well, we're assuming here that Josh is a pretty girl, right? I, I, yeah, well, I don't know. It's the girl, and I'm stuck with him, I guess. So there we go. Um, we got to talk about the polar plunge, obviously. Um, a lot of a lot of reviews came in. A, a, a lot. A lot more. A lot, a lot of reviews. And uh, so. Listeners, y'all are just the best. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's get into that. Best we're at, I think, 245 stars. We only need to get to 200, so overachievers. Yeah. Overachie- that's like, you know, that's like, I don't know what percentage increased because I can't do math, but that's that's a lot. That's a <laughs> lot more than what we wanted for. So as we said when we recorded the uh, the, the podcast of Despair, feel free to give Sympathy five stars now because January 31st, that's right. January 31st at 2.30 Central Standard Time, Lake Granbury, we will be going in. Some folks have asked about coming and participating. We're not going to do a big event, but if you do want to come, have a drink, get a late lunch, we will be here and we can do that with you guys. And then we'll go get in the lake at 2.30 on that Friday. So just need to hit us up, but um, we're not going to do an event. But if enough people want to come down or some folks will come down and grab a grab a drink, get a snack, something like that, we'll do that. There's plenty of little spots here beside us. Go to the German restaurant maybe. And get a pretzel and a beer or something. But anyway, yeah, some steins to keep us warm in the water. <laughs> so, January thirty first, uh, barring some kind of uh, bad rainstorm or something like that, uh, or if the w- water's too cold. You know, if the water's too cold, we might have call it off. But uh, <laughs> we will be in the water. So there's that. I don't understand you guys. You both have protective blubber layers. Wow. I have no wow. protective blubber wow. layer. I'm wow. facing this this thing stone cold. Okay. Okay. You done? You done? Y'all, y'all right. Let's let's about the let's, water being yeah. too cold. Let's read the reviews here. Normally I'm encouraged by these, but these are um they're they're a little mean to be honest with you. Some of them are, and we'll get to those in a second. Uh we have a bunch. I don't know if I get to them all today. Well, a couple are short. We'll try to get to them here pretty quick. Uh Grip Boy, Only Gas Made Fun, five stars, of course, great banter. Add some fun and insightful topics to the industry. Looking forward to twenty nineteen, especially New Year's Day. Well, I hope you enjoyed your New Year's Day. Mike Emin 
Mike M. Olin Gas, great podcast. Really enjoy the show. Also, a team functions best when they all participate. Hashtag triple dip. <laughs> I don't agree with that, but whatever. I cannot say this in this next one. JS. K S K A O. Yeah, really informative, entertainment, entertaining. Really good podcast, guys. I'm a high school senior planning on uh, going to Texas Tech for petroleum engineering, and y'all have made me excited to go in the industry. They told me it's a good idea to minor in environmental science while majoring in petroleum engineering. So I was wondering what y'all think about that, and if also y'all had any advice to get into the field. We'll tackle that next week just because we got a jam-packed show. So, Nate, put that down. We'll get yeah, to that next I'm week. A pin in that for our, our high school friend there. MWD Aggie Travis, it says, five-star, love the show. It's great that y'all do this and get the industry insight out of those of us who work in the office and don't get a lot of exposure slash contact with other industry people. I listen to each episode while working in the great city of Conroe. Here's to a great 2020 and a cold swim to start it off. Giggum. And this is where things go downhill. Bold, gla- bold, I'm sorry, black gold boss, hashtag Ryan and Speedo. Black gold grandma, very informative show, hashtag Ryan and Speedo. Black gold wife, very informative show, hashtag Ryan and Speedo. Um, there is a Speedo package at my house. I will say that. I did post it on Twitter and the Texel Gas Instagram page. I'm not saying what's in it. Josh and Nate do not know. They will find out on January 31st what is in the Speedo package. But you there is a Speedo assuming package. that we want to find out what you, is in that package. You're going to find out. All three in the lake from Very Blurry doing a great job. And love keeping up to date with you guys. Just remember one thing. Nate is the producer. He can edit what you say however he pleases keep up the hard work and look forward to oh, seeing what you have oh, planned in 2020 how right you are listener don't let my secret out yes um, and then NS 96 Nat I guess it's probably Nate's these are probably Nate's brothers or something informative oh, and entertaining never review this show a lot of great industry industry specific information is given in a casual entertaining format plus there's additional commentary offered on politics that will prove worth listening to as the 2020 election approaches occasional looming trade deal advice and insight on the chinese culture and added bonus of course that's all me so i'm out there <clears throat> interviews with various uh, industry professionals offer something for everyone for only 40 minutes of your week you can laugh you can learn laugh and profit swimming lessons and speedos not included so, yeah, it feels like the listeners dug into this a lot harder than we were hoping for. So I hope you guys get your money's worth on January 31st. Y'all again. are beautiful people, and we love all of you. Best audience ever. Um, January 31st, 2.30. Contact Nate for information. Josh, before the year ended, we had the opportunity to meet with someone. Um, and the person asked to rename, uh, remain anonymous, so we can't say the name. All we can say is that... Um, this ca- this information I'm about to give you came from an operational engineer at a large cap independent E and P company. We are going. This is a long, well put together thought process on sales. So, if you're on the vendor side of the business and you're going, you know, how do uh, the how does the other side of the table think about sales? This right here has been. Um, it was a good conversation we had this person, and then they sent this in, in kind of a note format. So, we'll link to this at textualandgaspodcast.com slash sales tips. Or is it tips or tip? Tips, tips, sales tips. Uh, and it, well, this this is it's, it's too much to read on the show, um, but we want to make sure everyone gets it. So we'll put it in here and probably sprinkle some of this in over the next few months as um, things come up. But we'll link to it so you can go read it yourself. One of the things that that, that that the person said at the very end was they talk about being desperate, and this is kind of the quote in the piece here. It says, "Are you desperate to make a sale because you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from? That is a recipe for disaster. Refuse to act out of fear. Choose to be a teacher instead." Desperate, pushy sellers are a gigantic turnoff. Um, and, and, and 
the person broke down how that comes across. And it was really kind of something that you don't think about sometimes, Josh, you know, you're sitting there and you're, you're in a meeting, you're trying to make a sale and, and you, you know, you, if the person senses, Hey, this person is really desperate. It, you know, it can kind of get you out the door a lot quicker than maybe you thought about. And, um, there's stuff about RFPs and about tearing up people's offices. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in here, um, uh, that, that this on this side of the table that me and you sit on and probably a lot of our listeners, you just don't think about. And so it was really good. And again, we'll probably hit more of these throughout the year, uh, throughout the shows coming up, but we wanted to go ahead and get this out there to the listeners, um, because it was given to us. So, com slash sales tips. It will be in the show notes so you can link to it and pick it up there and we will cover these points more in depth over the next few episodes. Um, I guess that's that's probably it as far as a, a recap, Josh. We had a good holiday other than that, huh? Yeah, yeah, man, good holiday. Um, been a lot of news coming out uh, since, let's see, the first of uh, our roundup. We got several things to mention and I, I left a lot out just because there's so much to cover, but um, yeah, I noticed you left that my my article and my Chinese article out. Uh, yeah, I noticed you left it out. Oh, hey, I was actually going to mention that though. So uh, there is a what story is it that we have that will? While you're looking that up, I will say if you are interested in the China stuff, uh, we will have a special edition of the Energy Week podcast today talking about the U.S. China trade deal. So if that's of interest to you, be sure to check out Energy Week podcast. It comes out the same time as this show does, just a different feed. So uh, Robin Goodman and David Weinstein will be on to talk about that. Okay, so in a little while, we're going to talk about oil jumps, jumps on U.S. killing of Iranian general. This was posted on January the 3rd. It's old news to everyone in the industry. It's over a week old. Um, but uh, you did write an article for China that talks a little bit about this. So we might um, might get linked that in the show notes if somebody wants to go check it out. Uh, some, some good insights there for how to think about um, how that could possibly escalate or not. So the um, first article I have, though, Ryan, David Blackman released this was today, actually, 930 this morning, the oil and gas situation in the midst of a major global boom. So, uh, so Blackman uh, released an article, and uh, basically he's uh, re- referencing a report from Rysted Energy, and a quote there is, the world's oil and gas explorers powered ahead and discovered 12.2 billion barrels of oil equivalent in 2019, the highest volume since 2015. So it's uh, it's really talking about a lot of the old discoveries, and and we're gonna you know find out more about that. But uh, the year 2020 is gonna be interesting to see um, where some of these discoveries are and how they affect the market. Yeah, and we've talked about this before, Josh. Is that a few years back uh, when the downturn happened, there was reports that we won't be able to find oil to replace the new discoveries that we lost out on because of companies pulling back their. Their, um, their 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 budgets for researching and finding new new plays, and so people are saying, well, uh, you know, the the big companies who go out and spend this money to find large plays, they're not putting the capital out there. Therefore, you could see a short term, um, you know, or uh, you could see an, in the short term rather, um, you know, um, the reserve dropping down too fast or, or whatever because we're not finding new plays. And I said at the time, it seems that if they really want to, you know, to do this, then they'll, they'll go do it. And there's some reasoning behind that. One is if you looked at it and said, well. We have X number, we find X number of barrels of oil, just to use that metric, uh, per year. And we need to find that much oil, new oil to keep up with the current pace of demand and demand growth, right? Uh, and you say, well, we lost that for a year or two years or, or whatever the case may be. Then you can you can predict that deficit will, will hit at this certain point in the future, right? Well, what happens is, is as you go along, you begin to see that if that if those barrels aren't found and they are needed, the price is going to rise because – 
you, you don't you have less supply it's right so at some point you say well okay we're going to potentially run out of supply so the fear would drive the demand up uh, the price up which would then give companies the um the um incentive to go and to not only put their normal capital budget but potentially maybe more capital into going and finding new plays and that would catch up to where they're at so um, part of that's what dave was talking about and um and it feels like uh, i think we talked about this a few months ago back this was kind of creeping back in the news but it feels like okay hey things will you know they're going to they're going to be okay we're not going to run out of oil and um, you know, it's just like anything else. You think about it, you know, like from a housing boom perspective, obviously it's easier to find land you can build a house on than it is to find oil reserves. I'm not saying that. But uh, when the economy's um, depressed and there's a, a, a lot of new houses that have been put on the market, people aren't going and buying land and throwing up new houses. They're not putting their capital in that. But when the economy starts to pick up and jobs are growing and cities are expanding, people start going and they, they probably overpay for the land, right? Um, and so, again, it's a rough analogy. You can parse it out and pick up, you know, pick it apart a little bit, but more or less, that's kind of how how you would think about it. So, um, the other thing to consider here, just from as we go back into 2020, you talked about the, the pricing is we're still in a spot right now. And this is for this show. I'm curious as we go through the months, um, what will be said because right now you saw what happened. Let's go back to January, uh, December 31st. So we had the attack on the embassy. Then two, three days later, we the U.S. killed the Iranian general. Then, what, two days later, the Iranians sent the missiles over and, sh- and shot at the base. And then there was a report, and I, I, I saw this a little bit, but there was some more missiles that landed in Baghdad, but I never really saw much about that. It didn't hurt anybody. It kind of, that kind of went away. It's, that, that really wasn't even a story, even though they landed inside of Baghdad. The prices went up and came right back down, just like they did uh, for the Saudi Arabia uh, attack on their on their on the um, on the Aramco facilities back in September October whatever it was, so the market's still saying you know these flare ups these tensions they do cause us concern but they're not enough concern to keep prices up high, as production, which you have, you have to presume at some point will drop in the U S, you know what does that do to prices and how fast is that now I know. Um, we need to get back on Ted Hall to talk about the ducks. I'm curious what his duck theory is and, you know, where it was from August, September. But, you know, less rigs, you know, the ducks have to come online. If they don't come online, the production will drop faster. So those are the things to watch for as we go to 2020, stuff we talked about before. But now that we're here, it's kind of like, okay, you know, it's kind of kind of exciting to see when do you start seeing the weekly crew uh, draws instead of added, uh, instead of draw, uh, adding to storage, you start drawing from storage. Um, those kind of trends are the things that, they're going to be interesting to watch. And how does that play in with OPEC? Because OPEC's got their cuts until March. So if the price stays, we'll call it soft, where it is now, soft, the 50s until March, um, OPEC might extend the cuts till June. Um, and But if, if if between, let's say, maybe April, you start to see the price start to tick up, start getting large draws from the, the oil, uh, oil storage, um, then you might see the prices kind of get on a little, a little bit of a run there uh, that pushes it into the second half of this year. If not, you know, you know, it could play, there's a lot of ways it could play out, but those are kind of some of the things as we go into 2020 that, that I think are worth watching and uh, it'd be interesting to see you know, how they actually shape, uh, shape up. Well, don't forget, Ryan, about the uh, the airplane that was, uh, I guess, supposedly or yeah. oh, air yeah, quotes yeah. accidentally yeah. shut down. I don't know. I'm not saying it was or it wasn't. I, I don't have an, I don't have a really strong opinion on it. But the uh, it shut down, and when they when they shot that down, I actually thought, oh, this right. this might be this might be cause for it. So they came out and said it was an accident. Uh, there's been reports that I've seen that it was actually uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't accidental. I don't know how you would measure that by. 
Yeah, yeah, I thought about that, and we don't want to. I know spend a lot of time on. We're not missile experts, but so it, if the missile has a mechanism that detects certain types of um, heat signatures or whatever, and it, it goes after those, and you fired one off, and the plane was in the path, and it just naturally went to it because of some kind of um, mechanism in the missile that made it go towards you know a heat seeking missile or, or whatever, then that could be an accidental firing where you fired it off. You didn't realize the plane was going through that trajectory, and it just diverted over naturally, and you didn't abort the mission for whatever reason. I'm not saying it's accident or not either. It wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't or was, but I've wondered about that. I'm not a missile expert, so I would love to – I guess it would depend on – you know, if it, was just a, if it was just like a hand grenade, right? You throw a hand grenade, this is just going to blow up whatever it hits. So if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a crude missile that just fires and just goes to wherever it's supposed to go and something – uh, just happens to be in the way, then that would be completely accidental. Um, if it was a missile that has certain uh, overrides on it that go and attack certain targets based upon heat or other type of signatures, and, it, and the plane was in the path and it diverted to hit that, that'd be the way. Uh, those would be the two plausible ways it could be accidental. Um, probably, it would you would assume it's more of a, it was more intentional, but that's just a guess. But I, I, I don't know. I don't have any well, reason to believe either way. Well, that that. Uh that put me. I think that that was uh, that was an alarming thing that I thought may result in something. But it seems like all sides are trying to uh, pull back and and uh, try to have a peaceful resolution. Uh, there was another thing, Ryan. Over the over the holidays, I spoke with um, a family member. He works for a major company, uh, one of the majors, and he works offshore. And he talked about some of the production. I believe the company was Shell some of the production that they're getting on, on some of their rigs offshore and some of the things that they're just now uh, completing setups for. And the numbers were staggering uh, with the, at the production, uh, the barrels per day production. Um, and in the, this article right here, uh, Blackman's, he mentions that um, just recently, so uh, Apache had some layoffs. Their third quarter last year was a catastrophe. Uh, and they are now shutting down their San Antonio office, which I have that. I think I think I have that in the uh, in the roundup. But just last week, they had a major discovery in Suriname. I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, east of Guyana. And then they're estimating just a huge reserve of oil there. Um, I think between these two and Guyana, I think it was 1.8 billion. Uh, Boe uh, that that they have just uh, just around the Guiana area so far, so um, a, a lot of discoveries going on. The offshore things, you know, we talked a little bit about twenty twenties and be several coming on. Uh, I asked who was that that we talked about uh, with on the show we interviewed, and and, and they said that. Um, well, yeah, he was talking about the Gulf of Mexico. This stuff won't be on. This offshore stuff won't be on for quite some time. Yeah, but, yeah, that know, won't be coming on. For, but um, for a while. yeah, Dan. Dan uh, yeah, that's right. That's right, Stephens. Stephens, yeah. Yeah, so, but one of the one of the things that was mentioned is that th- this year is where uh, offshore is supposed to actually peak. So 2020 is supposed to be the year that offshore is going to peak, and then it's going to start going down after that. So there's going to be more offshore production coming online this year than I think it, uh, at any point for the foreseeable future. So um, it's going to be something to watch for sure. Uh, next article report Permian Oil and Gas employed 87,000 people in 2019. This uh, just a, just a, a reminder of how many jobs have been created in the Permian. And I know that we've been tracking this, and that number is uh, on on the decline at this point. But um, just a tremendous amount of jobs that's been out there. And one of the things that people overlook in the in the 
industry, especially in, in politics, is um, the, the success that, that comes with the oil and gas industry. Yeah, and it's good. It's interesting to note, as we talked about before, when you look at these numbers, they're not an actual. Rep- they're 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 a um, they're a um, snapshot. They're not the full picture, right? Because these are only certain. There's only certain economic indicators that they mm. can take to do this. So um, it's kind of hard to measure exactly where this would fall. But um, but it is an indicator uh, of where things are. And yeah, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, it's uh, you know it's in- important for some of these small counties that that wouldn't have this type of. Uh, tax revenue or um you know sales tax and you know hotels and all that stuff that that, that, that they get the benefit of uh there's a forge article that came out two days ago oil and gas discoveries reach four-year high in 2019 as exploration spending set to grow so this touches a little bit on what blackman mentioned earlier i saw uh, i saw several people actually quoting this uh from different different locations but um it mentions the uh, the Ryset article that Blackman quoted, and basically, there's, there's 2019. There are so many discoveries uh, in different areas, including the Guiana discoveries. Um, it seems like the offshore is starting to kind of pick back up, um, and and, it, and they're saying the exploration is set to grow. So um, it, it's interesting to see. I, I I wouldn't have expected this earlier this year. You know, January. I wasn't expecting. Offshore, I say this year, last year. I'm about to say, well, yeah. ten days in, you're stunned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And the offshore stuff is going to be, like we said earlier, it's long term stuff that you're going to be seeing. You know, five, ten years down the road, they'll be talking about this um, coming online, or if maybe longer, depending on you know how these deals are set up. But it is, um, it is obviously encouraging to to know that no, we're not going to run out of oil, despite what. You know, we hear every other year, it seems like. Well, uh, moving into uh, the the roundup, we have, like I said, uh, lots of things that came out. Probably won't get to everything. Uh, the first one, and this well, is... Well, we should say, we, we have a guest coming on, so we're yep. going to do the roundup first. Yep. So uh, the, the battle over pipelines, population, and property rights in Texas Hill Country. Um, so this is eminent domain. Uh, there's a guy that owns a ranch. Kendra Morgan has a 432-mile line. They're going to be running across this uh, this ranch, and this guy is trying to fight it. And so there is uh, uh, the, the the property owner and, and the big corporation. So we try to keep up with this. Um, I know there's been some um, developments in, in some of the laws recently, and so it's going to be interesting to see how these laws affect how this case is litigated. So um, this may be something – um, getting our lawyer friend on to look at possibly, or uh, or getting one of the uh, the lawyers that came on to discuss eminent domain possibly to discuss some of the ramifications of this and how they think this is going to play out. Right, and, and you know the thing, and to, just to keep in mind, uh, uh, this aside from the the legal issue is uh, when you're reading these stories is so you have the property right and so you could just come with a position that says that the landowner should never have to give up his his, his, his rights so no matter what the landowner is saying um he's right because he shouldn't have to give up his rights. so you, you could have that position but if you have a position that says on some level there is you know uh the spot to put to, to exercise in a domain to put the pipeline in um the, the thing that's hard from these these pieces and these cases to understand is you know how good both sides have been in negotiating. Have they been? Um, have they been um, fair, equitable, 
in you know working with each other or has one side been hard to deal with and come to unreasonable you know um you know did the oil and gas company make too low of an offer and or the landowner make too um too tough of demand so it's hard to always get that when you get these pieces but it is something definitely to, to see how the new laws and um all that will will impact this yeah it's uh quite a Quite a pipeline that Kinder Morgan is uh, is building there, and speaking of Kinder Morgan, uh, they are uh, they they sold the entire five uh, percent equity stake in the Pembina Pipeline Corp. Um, it had received as a part of the purchase of Kinder Morgan Canada. So this was seven hundred sixty four million of net proceeds that they're going to be getting, and they're going to use that to pay down their debt. Uh, and this is reported on January the 9th. Right, today we have a special guest on, Dr. Anas Alhaji, an energy ex- expert, uh, markets expert based in Dallas, Texas. He's also the former chief uh, economist of NGP. So um, great to have Dr. Anas on today. Uh, Anas, been looking forward to this Thank episode for, for quite some time. Sure, sure. Yeah, I guess we sat down in, what was it, mid-December and, and had a nice cup of coffee there in Starbucks. And we said, you know, we want to hear from your perspective, kind of some of the issues that you see. You bring obviously more of an international perspective than maybe this show covers on a regular basis. But you talk about a couple of things that I think are important for the listeners to hear and to kind of get some exposure to if they're not already familiar. And so um, there's two things really, and you can kind of dissect these. We've got crude quality and we've got shale quality. Kind of break those two terms down. What do they mean and why are they important for folks in the Texas industry? All right. Uh, the first issue is uh, shale quality. When we talk about shale quality, we got to remember that what really hurt the shale industry in the United States and why investors run away from the shale industry and why we are seeing less investment in shale, why shale is getting a bad reputation in the financial community, is simply not because of oil prices like some people think. We can survive at $55 oil and make a lot of money out of 55 if everything we produce from the well is regular oil, in a sense. The problem is, in many areas in West Texas, for example, about 45% of what is produced is natural gas and NGLs, that natural gas liquids. Think about it this way. That gas is either flared, so there is no financial return on that, or sold at a negative price, so it is an additional cost, or sold at some price, but it is very low, as you all know. NGLs lost about 50% of their value. So here you go. About 45% of your BOE, barrel of oil equivalent, basically, has almost no value. And the only value you make is out of the 55%. And that 55% is sold at around $55. So this is not enough to have a very good positive cash flow and not good enough to make money. So it's not about the price of oil. It's about the composition of shale itself in terms of gas and GLs and oil, crude. If everything we produce is... um, just crude with API that is below 40, then we are fine. 
but that's not the case. So that's when it comes to shale quality. Uh, r- real quick, let me, let me just pop in there. Um, so we have the disparity where it's not 100% crude. Uh, what would natural gas price roughly have to be to make up the loss? So if you said, well, natural gas prices was you know 13, obviously we'd be making a lot of money. Where does sure. natural gas price have to be to make up that deficit by losing um, the crude to natural gas? Generally speaking, if we have increase in gas prices by about 50 to 70%, the same thing with NGLs, with all the prices as is today, all, all or most of those companies will have positive cash flow and they will make money. That was a great question, by the way. When it comes to crude quality, and that's we are talking about the 55% here in West Texas, we have another problem. And the problem is most of that crude is very light, super light, or condensate. For those who are wondering whether we are counting NGLs or condensates in crude, yes, we are. But we have to distinguish between two cases. Legally, there is NGL that comes from natural gas, from natural gas wells. This is counted all over the place. And that's what's counted. The problem is if we have NGLs and condensates basically coming out of oil well, that is not counted as NGLs or condensates. It's probably counted down the line after it goes through processing and refineries, but not at the wellhead. And therefore, most of the crude or most of the increase in crude that we've seen, especially within the last year or so, is with API above uh, uh, 42 API. And there's a problem with that because when you take that through a refinery, most of what you get out of it is gasoline and naphtha. But we need diesel. We need the heavier products. How to get that? Now, can we get diesel and heavier products from shale? Yes, we can. But the problem is we have to flood the gasoline market and we have to flood the naphtha market to get the required amount of diesel. No refiner in his right mind will do that because the refiner will try to maximize every portion of the barrel. So they cannot do that. So shale is not going to help on that uh, on that front. But to look at shale quality slash crude quality impact, it's been playing in the market for the last year and a half. And the impact of it on the market is tremendous. It's beyond even what we predicted earlier. Shale companies are suffering because of the shale quality. At the same time, we are exporting all the additions to other countries because the refiners are not taking it. The idea that we can get everything we wanted from shale and we don't need foreign oil is a complete nonsense. Here is why. Because if you look at pad three, at pad three, we are exporting more than what we are importing from pad three. And the question is, why we are importing if we are exporting more than what we are importing? Why we are not using that oil domestically since shale is cheaper than other crudes? Well, simply because of crude quality. Those refiners needed the heavier crudes to produce the heavier products that are needed by the market. So the problem for the future is the following. The problem is if we go with the IEA, International Energy, uh, Energy Agency forecast or OPEC forecast for shale, we are heading for a big problem because they are forecasting what they call this explosive growth in shale. 
and shell production in the coming years. And shale growth is going to be more than the growth in global oil demand. The problem here is multifold problem. Here is why. First, this is not going to happen because the future demand in oil and oil products is for the heavier products, mostly for trucking in Asia and other places. We need that diesel and, and fuel oil. If you take their own forecast about electric vehicles and you take their own forecast about fuel efficiency in non-electric vehicles, then the damage is going to be for the gasoline part. And therefore, shale is not needed because it produces a lot of gasoline. We needed the heavier products. Therefore, shale growth is going to kill shale growth. And we are going to end up with a situation where we are going to have supply shortages simply because the International Energy Agency and others who are bragging about shale meeting all the growth in demand, they are scaring investors worldwide. They are scaring the, the international oil companies and they are scaring the national oil companies. And therefore, they are not investing enough to compensate for the decline in their own fields. And then if shale is going to be useless in the, or the growth is going to be useless in the future and we cannot use it, then we have a gap. How we are going to fill that gap if we don't have enough investment today to compensate for it? So we are going to end up with a serious problem on the supply side. We have other problems on the demand side. If you look at those forecasts, you see that historically, if you look at the last 40 years, if you look at the forecast in 1990 for oil demand today, we realized that almost all organizations overestimated the global demand. And the estimation or the difference in estimation is large. It's between 10 to 14 million barrels a day. So today's oil demand is about 14 million barrels a day lower than what was expected. And there are many reasons for that. But the problem is, for some reason since 2010, those forecasts flipped. So now the, the, they are very conservative in their forecasts. And the demand in 2040 or 2050 is underestimated. And it is underestimated for several reasons. For example, if you look at the details of the forecast and you look at fuel efficiency, for example, I'm not talking about electric vehicles here. I'm talking about gasoline and diesel engines. They estimate that fuel efficiency alone will reduce oil demand between 8 to 12 million barrels a day in the next 25 years. Here is the problem with this estimate. It never happened in the past, even when we had low-hanging fruits in the 80s. It never happened. So how this is going to happen when we did, it did not happen even with the low-hanging fruit? But even if you look at the details of it, engine efficiency is already maxed out. The use of light metals in those cars already maxed out. We can move to a lighter metals, but the cost is going to increase between 25 to 70% of those cars, and auto companies are not going to do it. And the other one is we were able to improve the efficiency by building smaller cars. We kept making them smaller and smaller. We cannot make them smaller than our bodies. <laughs> so 
technology maxed out, use of, ma of light metals maxed out, the size is maxed out. So where this efficiency is going to come from? Yeah. Do we have a new technology? Yes. Aramco and Ford are working on a new technology. They've been bragging about it for the last three years. We did not see anything on the ground. But assume that because it can improve the efficiency of those engines by about 80 to 90 percent. And it will deem electric vehicles useless if we have it. Right. And we still use gasoline. Yep. So you cover the a lot. Problem. Sure. Let me hop in here because you cover a lot of ground. I want to circle back around a couple of things. Um, so let's go back to a couple of things that we've heard and get your opinion on um, as, it, as it pertains to the, the shale oil, uh, the quality. Um, so IMO 2020, um, I think it was drilling info last year that said that IMO 2020 will be a good um, boom. I don't, I don't want to put words in the mouth, but it'd be good for shale because of we can create the proper type of fuels needed from uh, shale better than you can from the heavier crudes. Would you agree with that or disagree with that? And then, but, and then in that also, as you see growth in China, China or Africa or India, some of these emerging markets that come first world, what about plastics and how much will, um, as these countries become, these continents and countries become richer and richer, the more plastics they use, where does shale fit into that narrative? Sure. So with IMO 2020, uh, luckily we are already in 2020 and we already know some of the uh, results. The crude that is demanded the most is heavy sweet, not light sweet. I think people got fooled by the word sweet <laughs> in shale and they thought it works. Well, those ships basically, they still need the heavy, the heavy stuff. They need the diesel and the heavier stuff. And now we know that if you look at price differentials of some of those products, they are sold today at record high prices. So, and you look at price differentials between sweet, heavy, and others, the heavy sweet basically is the best crude for IMO today. It's not shale. Shale is not helping that much with IMO. Regarding the demand for plastic, there is a lot of irony here because today, uh, we have this big conference in Saudi Arabia and the uh, energy oil minister, Prince Abdulaziz, was asked about uh, uh, oil to petrochemicals because they've been working on this project. And he refused to answer it. And he said, I would rather focus on the bigger projects that I'm going to talk about very soon. So on one side, that demand for plastic, basically, it seemed like the technology is there. We already have some projects around the world where we get petrochemicals out of oil, not out of natural gas, naphtha, and others. But on the other side, you look at the IEA, the International Energy Agency. They already made fun of Saudi Arabia three years ago when the Saudis announced oil for petrochemicals. A year later, they found out that their forecast for shale will not work unless they increase the demand for plastic and petrochemicals. And all of a sudden, the International Energy Agency is adopting the Saudi idea, and they blocked in shale into their equations just to show the massive increase in shale. By doing so, they shot themselves in the foot, because if shale is not going to deliver, it means that the petrochemical sector is not going to deliver and plastics is not going to deliver. So that was a big mistake on the IEA part by blogging in shale growth to match the growth in petrochemicals. The problem with petrochemicals and plastic is recycling 
is a big industry here. And recycling is big worldwide. The other thing is we have this backlash against plastic, which is increasing worldwide. This young generation basically is shying away from it. We are already hearing about restaurants basically making some sort of disposable cups and plates and other things. So we are seeing some movement out of plastic. But you are absolutely correct that those guys in some Asian countries and in Africa, they are not going to settle for the lower lifestyle. As their lifestyle improves, they want exactly what the Americans and the Europeans have, and their demand for plastic is going to increase. And then one, one final thing here on the metals for the cars. Um, it seems to me that we, we do have lighter metals in the cars today, but you mentioned getting lighter metals. There is a safety balance where uh, an efficiency balance, you know, if you go lighter and you're still going 70, 80 miles an hour, you do give up safety. So at some point, it feels like there, there's going to be a discussion about, you know, can you make the cars lighter? Um, how much safety are you giving up? I don't think the self-driving car is anywhere near uh, to being at mass scale if it's ever going to work in our lifetime. Uh, but it, on that argument, it, it seems like this from this from the weight of the cars, as you mentioned, I don't know, is, is there actually any real movement that could be made? Because at some point... How do you protect people in the car if you just put, you know, really? Correct, correct. Here is, here is the, uh, the, another irony here. Think about an electric car. Electric car, basically, the heaviest thing in an electric car is the battery itself. And usually they are heavier. Those cars are heavier than similar cars that run on gasoline. And if you build that car from some sort of fiberglass that is stronger than or as strong as metal or stronger, and we already have that technology and we can do it. And some of the fanciest cars basically are made that way. So the body is lighter and it's strong enough. The irony here is <laughs> you're still using oil and gas to build the car. Right. right. That you are building to get rid of oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's transition now. That's a very good um, overview of kind of the, the global scene. We will link to the EIA where they release the PADS um, import-export information so people can go look that up uh, that you referenced. Let's talk about a couple of things. First, let's talk about – we were talking earlier that where we're at right now, and get your take on this, is um, as we go into 2020, at some point, unless something – as things stand today, shale production, especially in the Permian, is going to have to decrease if you take these – uh, factors. The rig count keeps the drop. However many ducks you think there are, they're going to have to come on. Eventually, there's only a finite number of those. And so at some point, um, the production is going to have to taper off, and then you would assume they're going to start drilling again. Um, you factor in what's going on with the OPEC cuts until March. Uh, they might be extended until June. Weave that narrative from your perspective. What are some of the things that we should look for? Uh, kind of explain for people who may not follow OPEC what the OPEC cuts actually mean when they say they're cutting 500,000 barrels. Um, and what should our listeners be looking for as 2020 begins to roll out? Uh, if they're out here like us working in the Texas oil and gas industry, you know, trying to figure out, hey, is this going to be something good for the year, bad for the year, uh, good for prices, bad for prices? Obviously, um, we talked a little bit about what happened in Iran, and you saw the price go up and come right back down. So it, we're not in a spot where geopolitical tension is going to hold prices up. It feels like fundamentals are going to hold prices up. So, what are some of the indicators um, that could seeing for uh, that we could see for stronger fundamentals to push the market where prices might go higher? Sure, uh, we cannot talk about 2020 without talking about what happened in in 2019. Uh, OPEC was uh, 
OPEC Plus was cutting production, but most of the cut is coming from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia targeted the United States for the cut, so they've been cutting their exports until we reach the lowest in, in more than 40 years. Uh, and inventory should have declined and oil prices should have gone up. But it did not happen. And all the those uh, bulls basically were disappointed and Saudis and OPEC members uh, basically were disappointed too. Uh, what we did not see and what the IMO 2020 experts missed, and we, now we know it after the fact, that while everyone was fo focusing on crude quality and focusing how we are going to get this, what kind of scrubbers we are going to put on those ships, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of us basically ignored the fact that refiners reacted in a way that was now after the fact should have been expected, but it wasn't expected. What refiners did basically is they moved their maintenance operations from the first quarter of 2020 to the third quarter and fourth quarter of 2019. A refinery utilization declined, including in the United States. And when refining utilization declined, the demand for crude declines, and then we end up with increase in storage and prices decline. So that was a big surprise. The problem is we had a major build in storage in the fourth quarter in 2019. That's going to move to 2020. And OPEC has to deal with that. So when OPEC decided to cut production and then they have the extra voluntary cuts of 400, they did it for several reasons, of course. One of them is they have this built up in storage that was not counted before. So they need to counter that. Add to that that seasonally, global oil demand declines in the first quarter or the first half of 2000, uh, first half of the year. And therefore, they have to account for the decline in demand and that increase in supply and how they are going to drain storage. And that's why they did cut in December, or they decided to cut in December, they, st they start cutting in January. And I think that cut is going to be very effective. The issue here is, and that's what's missing from the market, is that since refiners moved their refin uh, maintenance operations from the first half of 2020 to 2019, now the demand for crude is higher than usual in the first quarter. So if you look at the IEA or OPEC forecast, they expect a seasonal decline in global oil demand by about 1 million barrels a day in the first quarter. Now, this is not going to happen. By my estimate, the decline will be only about 400, which means that we have increased in demand above forecast by 600,000 barrels a day. That is a significant amount and has a significant impact on inventories. So that's the first thing about 2020, that demand is going to be higher than expected in the first quarter. Then you look at the forecast again, and they are expecting a growth of about 1 million barrels a day to 1.2 in 2020 as a whole. I think this is low for several reasons. So you add to it the increase in the first quarter. You, you add to it that the forecast itself was already low. So we are going to have higher growth of demand in 2020 than usual. Here is the problem. By the second half, OPEC members and others have to increase production because of U.S. elections. This is not about President Trump, by the way. 
if you look at the history, the Saudis and their allies held every Republican president in his election. So it's not about Trump. And some people say, well, Trump and Saudis and Trump and NBA. No, it's not about President Trump. It is about Trump being a Republican. Republican. <laughs> now, it's not about Trump being good to them or not. By nature, the U.S. energy industry and the U.S. oil industry and the global oil industry is Republican by nature. And the reason why they want to support President Trump now, shell producers got hurt big time and they lost billions of dollars because of lower oil prices and because Trump tweets and others. But they still, they want to vote for him because the alternative is worse. And the alternative is worse for the U.S. shell industry, for the U.S. oil industry, and for the global oil industry worldwide. So to guarantee their survival in the long run, they need to lower prices, support the U.S. economy, so Trump can be reelected. And therefore, by the time the market will get tight and prices should go up, the elections are going to put a cap on that, at least. We'll put a cap on that. So I am not that bullish on 2020, although we have some evidence to support yeah. the uh, bullishness. Right. So um, one of the things on this show... We, we, uh, we have a lot of folks that kind of aren't necessarily trader back. So obviously bullish means price goes up, bearish means price goes down. But when you say that, you might go, oh, wow, do you mean $40 a barrel? You're talking mid-50s? You're talking 60 When you say bullish, you're not that bullish. Where do you kind of expect the price to kind of the range for this year to be at? Uh, I, I think um, around today's uh, prices. I yeah. think today's okay. prices right. are a reasonable uh, within a reasonable range. Okay. Or yeah. the whole 2020. That, that's what I figured you meant. But sometimes um, I've I've learned that if I don't if I don't clarify that, it can kind of for for folks like me who are in the industry and the price moves up from 58 to 59, that doesn't really impact me much. The no, traders no, you, is a big are, deal, right? You you are absolutely correct because one of the uh, basically the number one lesson I learned from being in the investment part of the oil industry was that. Uh, the perception of what you say is more important than what you said. <laughs> and, and, and to give you an example, because I think everyone will benefit from that. If I say prices are not sustainable below 70, mm-hmm. it does not mean that prices will not go below <laughs> 70. Right. Because some people may, might think, oh, Anna said prices will not go below 70. I did not say that. I said prices are not sustainable. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Below 70. Mm-hmm. So you are right. Perception matters. Okay. Two kind of, we're up against the clock here. So two questions. Let's get your quick take on these. Um, I said over the weekend in a piece that uh, the sign of the phase one trade deal shouldn't have any immediate impact, a slight bump, maybe in oil prices. As the deal kind of works its way through the system, you might see how it impacts prices. Um, what's your general take on phase one being signed? Was it this week? Um, will we see any long-term lasting pr- uh, impact on prices um, moving forward, or will it take a little while to see how it actually plays out? Uh, generally generally speaking, any trade deal is good for all prices. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, the impact, if we have a full trade deal and we end up with a kind of lower tariff or no tariffs at all, that is very bullish for oil. And it's not only about the U.S. and China. It's just the whole world trade mm. is yeah. going to be different. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to lead to higher economic growth. And that higher economic growth is going to put pressure on uh, oil demand. 
so all demand will increase and prices uh, will increase in this case. Okay. So I think it is the biggest bullish factor that we might see in 2020 and after is the uh, uh, trade war ending or easing. Okay. Uh, final question for you here. Let me just throw this out there, and because you uh, follow the Middle Eastern politics and kind of have a good pulse of what's going on there. I was talking to uh, Nate and Josh here uh, before the show, and I, and I said, you know, if I was advising Trump, if I was advising Trump, what I would say right now is I'd come out on, um, I'd, I would do it privately, then come out publicly and invite the leaders of Iran and say, look, the past 15 days have been tumultuous. Um, obviously, things are going on. We want to put it into this right now. We want to lift the sanctions. We want to put a deal together because it feels like today Trump has the most leverage, at least from an American's perspective, looking at Iran, going, there's some there's some tension. There's been tension, obviously, in Iran, but there's some tension in Iran. Um, maybe there's they're feeling a little bit of pressure, and Trump could come out and say, you know what? Let's go ahead and let bygones be bygones. Let's get a deal done. We'll meet neutral. You can come to the White House, whatever. You can, how you want to message that. Um, it would put him in a good position. I don't know if the Iranians would be receptive to that or not, but it would put him in a good position to potentially weaken the Iranians' position moving forward because they say, well, Trump did actually try to say, let's put a, you know, let's put everything behind us. Um, but he didn't do that early. I mean, he's kind of, he didn't re- retaliate with a big military strike either. Just shortly kind of walk through what you think both sides should do and what would be an effective strategy for the U.S. dealing with Iran as we move through this year? See, the issue of Iran is not only the nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. The nuclear deal is just one issue among many. What you are going to do about Iran and Syria? What you are going to do about Iran and Yemen? Mm-hmm. What you are going to do about Iran and Israel, for example? Okay, These are serious issues that all Trump supporters in the region are worried about. So how you are going to, you probably can deal with the nuclear issue, but what about Yemen? What about Syria? What about the 500,000 people who are killed in Syria, for example? Okay. What about this idea of exporting the revolution to other countries because they try to export it to Egypt? They try to export it to Sudan. So the issue is not only about nuclear. It's bigger than the uh, nuclear. That's number one. The other issue is people have to realize that for Iran, yes, you have elections, Yes, you have a a president that is elected and you have a cabinet of ministers. But at the end, it is a one-man show. And if it is a one-man show, how are you going to deal with with one man who might die tomorrow and then you have another man with a completely different opinion to deal with? So the issue, what I'm trying to say here is the issues are more difficult than just reaching a nuclear deal. Yeah, and And if we go back... I'll just say, it's, I, just one yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. If we go back to the nuclear deal, okay, and what Obama did, people who are supporting the nuclear deal should remember that the cost of the nuclear deal was a half million Syrians being killed. They should realize that we have 12 million refugees in Syria and Yemen because of that nuclear deal. So it's not, if we just focus on the nuclear deal, there is a price to pay. And, and it seems people are not paying attention to that. No, I, I think you're, 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 you're right to point out um, 
when you look at what's going on with the U.S. and China, obviously China's big backer. They buy Iranian oil. They have uh, a lot of interest in Venezuela, and they support North Korea. We can debate over how much support they're giving North Korea. Uh, and those are not countries that the U.S. is currently uh, in friendly terms with. And so when you talk about these geopolitical sure. deals, it does it does go further than the one-to-one. I guess I was just curious if you thought that Trump could get any leverage um, right now or any – compromise on some of these issues with the Iranians because of what's going on. Um, and it, it's kind of hard to understand when you look at these protests in Iran, how widespread they are. Uh, because if you had a picture of a protest here in the U.S., it might be one little small city that's irrelevant. Um, but you follow this very closely, so I was curious what your what your general thoughts were. Obviously, it's... Uh, let me, make one, well, yes. let me one, make one comment, okay? Mm-hmm. It does not make sense that Trump or Obama will worry about demonstrators in the street of Iran and let a half million people in Syria die. Just the, the whole principle basically does not add up in this case. So the idea is that they care about those guys in the street. I don't believe it for a minute because we've seen what happened in Yemen and Syria. I think we both agree on that, that that we do agree on for sure. Um, okay, this has been wonderful. I thank you for your time. It's always good to chat with you. Uh, we're going to link to your Twitter and your website, are those the best two spots for people to connect and to follow your yes. work? Yes. Okay. Yes. Any final things that we didn't get to that you wanted to, to mention before we get off here today? Well, I, I think because there is a subject that we probably we need to discuss later on, this confusion about uh, uh, energy independence and uh, energy dominance mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But that needs a whole show, basically, <laughs> to talk about. So, because it seems like people are completely confused about those statements. Okay. Well, we would love to get you back on. So maybe uh, end of February, early March, we'll get we'll circle back around and get you on. We'll talk about well, that. Well, uh, I am heading to Egypt tonight, and uh, I'll be back on the 23rd. Okay. Awesome. Uh, it was okay. good to speak to you. Good seeing you since the new year, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, All sir. All right. Have a great day. Well, Bye. thanks again for Anas uh, coming on the show today. I thought that was uh, a fan, some fantastic information. Uh, just insights there i think explain a lot of what's going on and we don't we don't get a lot of that in in our in our news so um ryan what do you think i i think the the crew quality and shell quality has a lot to do with what we're seeing right now because all the reports said if we were you know mid 50s and 60s the the price we would be doing we would have a a a strong oil economy and it seems that we um we we hit those numbers even exceeded them and yet there's been many bankruptcies. There's been many layoffs. Um, I think, I think the, uh, the shale quality and the crew quality might be uh, the, the factors that we haven't accounted for there. Yeah, it's, it's definitely part of it. And it's hard to – we had 30 minutes with him, and that was uh, you know, not, not nearly enough time to kind of get into that because you could start saying – so first off, yeah, I think he brings a lot of very helpful and things for us to look at. Then you start, you start asking questions like, okay um, – we can say that this, you know, this is uh, true generally in the Permian. What percentage of uh, companies is this true for, right? Um, and then are companies being more successful um, or all these companies failing? So you can start asking a lot of questions. I think that's a great launching spot to say, okay, here's a general trend, and then how do you dig down from there? So it's, uh, it's very helpful. He's obviously a, a super sharp guy. And I like that he points out when you talk about the – uh, the international stuff that it's just not as clean as a one to one. There's always the other factors, and that's what makes it. That's what makes it. 
I hate to say fun because there's people's lives at stake, obviously. So it's not fun in that sense, but it's, it's fun to think about and to work through and to try to figure out because there's, it's, it's not as simple as a, a one-to-one deal. So anyways, we'll link to the um, EIA stuff about the pad three, where it's all, all the pads and you can take a look at that if that's of interest to you. And we'll get him back on here maybe in a month or so to talk about uh, energy dependence versus energy dominance. But yeah, great guy. Um, I know some of our listeners who have reached out when they heard he was coming on were, were quite excited. So hope that was helpful to you guys. We'll be sure to link to the sales tips on textilegaspodcast.com slash sales tips. And we will probably probably hit those maybe one a week until we run out of them um, so we can go through those. I'll be at Nape here in just a few weeks. So if you'll be at Nape, let me know. And uh, Josh, anything else? Um, do we want to hit any of the uh, the other things on the roundup or you want to call it? It's probably pretty yeah, long we've been in a long episode. So we'll go ahead and call it. And listeners, we will be back week, back next week. Until next time, keep climbing. <laughs>